As Pete mentioned earlier, we are going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. So if you would like to turn there. I'm sure that you've heard this statement before. The only dumb question is the one that you don't ask. I'm not so sure that I completely agree with that. Are you ready? Can I safely look at a picture of the sun? Is the Hunger Games based on a true story? Are there birds in Canada? I know they have moose there, but I'm wondering if they have birds. This is the best one. Do you think NASA invented thunderstorms to cover up the battles that are taking place in space? Okay. So, one of the things that I have enjoyed about working with our youth, and by the way, those questions didn't come from any of our youth. But one of the things that I have enjoyed about working with youth for so many years is the questions that they ask. Because they have fresh minds that think outside the box. More than us older folks, and I think one of the reasons is because they don't have as many boxes as we do. And so for those of us who are older, I think we should always be patient and encourage questions, and try hard to understand the questions, and do our best to answer them. One of the questions that's asked by, I would say, everyone who has ever lived is what happens to us when we die? How do we get to heaven? What will it be like? And tied into that, related to that, are other questions such as where do we come from? And what is the meaning of our lives? And that question, how do we get to heaven, is the one that we're going to deal with today out of Luke chapter 18. Let's pray before we begin. Father, I pray this morning that you would be the very center of this time, that you would take away distraction, take away anything that would hinder your spirit from doing his work in each of us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you that we can walk safely with you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Here in Luke chapter 18, we're going to see this morning several things about the path of life. And the first is this. It is not gained, it is not gained through our own designs. Look with me at verse 18 of Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Now, to this man's credit, he recognized Jesus' authority. Was he trying to flatter Jesus? Or did he really believe him to be good? G. Campbell Morgan says this about this. Uh, let me, before that, uh, in any event, the first part of Jesus' answer was no doubt not what he was expecting. And G. Campbell Morgan says this to that. Why is it so many expositors and preachers dealing with a story miss out very largely or dismiss this with a passing reference? When Jesus said, why do you call me good? None is good save one, and that is God. He meant one of two things. He either meant, I am not good, or he meant, I am God. And that's what Jesus is starting this man's thinking about at this point. What is it that you really want in asking how to inherit eternal life? Now, many people try to bargain with God or impress God. They think, God, if you just get me this promotion, I will give so much more money to your work. Or, God, if I can get an A on that test, I'll give more time to serving you and so on and so forth. I wonder this morning, have you ever tried bargaining with God about anything? Notice the man's focus is gaining life. And a question that comes to me is he's simply trying to fill an insurance category, or does he really desire a relationship with a living God? In other words, is he simply checking boxes? Or is he really curious about Jesus? Notice he wants to do something to inherit life. And that gives me pause as well, because do we generally think about an inheritance as something that we earn? And for some people, maybe that answer is yes. You have to behave well for uncle so-and-so to leave you something in his will. But I think for the most part, we don't think about inheritance as something that we earn. But here, he is wanting to do something to inherit eternal life. Now, notice the specific commandments that Jesus quotes to this man. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. False testimony. Honor your parents. Why does he quote these commandments. Why doesn't he start at the beginning of the Ten Commandments? Flip over to Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has asked this very same question by an expert in the law.
In verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And then the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Same question, completely different circumstance, evolves. Why? Jesus is... Back over in Luke 18, I believe that Jesus is setting up this young man to deal with the idol that controls his life. And you ask, how so? Well, had the man really kept all the commandments, all these particular commandments, since he was a boy? Couldn't Jesus have named for him all the times he had lied or stolen something or had hatred in his heart? Now, either this man was an incredibly good person or Jesus was choosing to deal with the root of his heart issue. And I believe it was the latter. Jesus wanted to deal with this man's heart. In Mark's telling of this story at this point, he says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus was reaching out with his own heart to this man's heart. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells this man that he only lacks one thing, but oh, the thing that he lacked. All he had to do was just sell his possessions and follow Jesus. And why did Jesus ask this man to do this? Jesus didn't ask everyone to do this. In fact, in Mark 5, to the man whom Jesus had cast out a legion of demons, and the man was begging to follow Jesus, Jesus said, go home to your own people, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So Jesus doesn't seem to ask the same thing of all of us. He asks different things of different people. So why then did Jesus ask so much of this man? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that ultimately... Whether he was a moral person or not, whether he had good behavior in obeying the commandments or not, 
ultimately, this man's wealth was his God. It was his obstruction to relationship with the true God. He would never be able to completely trust in the Lord so long as he had his money to fall back on. It is for this reason Jesus requires him to get rid of all of it. Oz Guinness in the call says this. He says, God alone needs nothing outside himself because he himself is the highest and the only lasting good. So all objects we desire, short of God, are as finite and incomplete as we ourselves. And, therefore, disappointing if we make them the objects of our ultimate desire. Jesus, seeing the man's sadness, now makes a comment that will completely shock his disciples how incredibly hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. It was a common belief that if you were good, you would be blessed by God with material things. I mean, after all, hadn't God done that for Abraham and all of the patriarchs? For David and Solomon? Solomon, who was richer than anyone? And Job? Job lost it all, but he got back twice, and so many others. So what could Jesus have meant by that? I have to tell you that this statement by Jesus haunts me. It haunts me for our whole society. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are the richest nation that to this point has ever been on the face of the earth across our whole society. We are not immune to the tangles of money and what it can do to us. Even those who are not rich by our country standards have much compared with the rest of the world and the rest of history. And with that, comes much responsibility. So we see that the path to life is not gained by our own designs. The path to life is gained by submission to Christ. That's what Jesus was asking this man to do. He was asking him to put him on the throne of his heart. Verse 26, we'll see that the path to life is worth whatever it is that God asks of us. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. The disciples are flabbergasted. 
If those who are blessed by God with wealth in this life have a hard time getting to heaven, who has any hope? Jesus holds out to them a lifeline. It is truly impossible and hopeless for people to gain their way into heaven. But man's impossible is God's possible. No matter how illogical or improbable God's way seems to be, it is indeed the right way. Peter makes the observation that he and others have done exactly what Jesus is asking this man to do. And I don't think Peter's being cocky at this point. I think he's just kind of thinking out loud, like, hey, we did that. Jesus' reply to Peter is one that has always baffled me. What could he possibly mean that his followers would receive a hundred times as much in this present age? And I can't pretend to understand what that means completely. But a few years ago, it dawned on me what this means to me. What I like to do right now is have everyone... So first, if you've worked with our youth group at all in the time that I've been here, please stand up. If you have hosted a youth group in your home or a Bible study, please stand up. Please stay standing. If If you've mentored a youth or contributed to our youth financially, please stand up. Thank you. you. may be seated. Now I know that you're supporting our youth. It's not me personally. But I also know that had we the need, many of you would open your homes to us, to me and my family. By the way, my wife is going to be here for the next nine months (laughs) and may have some needs. And uh, for those of you who might be wondering, we're, thank the Lord, God gets the glory, our relationship is doing well. (laughs) I'm not running away from her. (laughs) But we feel this is what the Lord is leading us to do for this season. So... I can tell you that what God has done for me personally, he will do for you and has done for many of you. Excuse me one second. 
It's hard to preach when you're sniffing. So what must you do to inherit eternal life? Would God ask you to sell everything that you have? Would he ask you to change careers? Would he ask you to leave your family and go someplace else? Would he ask you to go home and tell all those around you everything he has done for you? He may ask you to do any and all of these things. But that's not really the point. The point is that it's about relationship with him. And when you have relationship with him, when you've trusted Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross of Calvary, when you've asked his forgiveness for your sin, when you've begun walking by the Spirit in the new life that God offers, and you have that relationship, guess what? Obedience gets a whole lot easier because you know the person you're walking with. And you can do, he will give you the courage to do whatever it is he asks for you to do. And I can testify to you today that if he does ask any of the things of you, following him is worth all of the sacrifices you might make. You will receive many times over what you give up in this world and you will inherit eternal life. Pray with me. Father, in this moment, may your spirit move. I pray that your spirit would move to that one or those ones who have kind of been walking alongside of you, but not really walking with you. To those for whom you are a knowledge and a thought, but not really a person. And Lord, I I would think that all of us sometimes fall into that, but for the one who has never met you, who has never come to the cross and surrendered completely, I pray that you would not give that person peace until he or she does that. Let them know of your love. Let them know, Lord, that there is a need, that there is judgment one day. But let them know that because of your love, they do not have to face that judgment if they are found in you. So, Lord, for all of us here today, help us to examine ourselves, not just in this moment, but regularly, to see that we are walking with you in relationship. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.